Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is Victor Shi. And I'm Jill Wine Banks, and I'm wearing a voting pin today that shows two powerful women voting. And that's very relevant to our conversation with Maya Wiley, our guest today. Across the country, civil rights are under attack. In June, the Supreme Court reversed Roe versus Wade, which established a constitutional right for women seeking an abortion. And Justice Thomas, uh, his concurring opinion went even further, suggesting that the Supreme Court's logic should be extended to other civil rights, including same-sex marriage and the right to contraception. Senator Cruz now, perhaps unsurprisingly, is supporting the overturning of Obergefell on the grounds that it is also wrongly decided. Voting rights, too, are under severe attack. Meanwhile, Republican state legislatures across the country are pressing ahead, introducing legislation that would prevent reproductive rights, make it harder to vote, and target LGBTQ expression in the classroom. It's really a reality that none of us should have to live in, but the fact that we do requires us all to do what we can to defend, protect, and strengthen our civil rights and liberties. How can we do that? Well, one way is through the organization that my friend Maya Wiley, the new CEO and president of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights does. She joins us today to talk about the efforts underway to protect those challenged civil and human rights and what all generations, particularly victors, should do to defend them. Maya took this position when Vanita Gupta, its then president, took a senior position in President Biden's Department of Justice. Maya is known as a civil rights attorney and activist who has dedicated her life to the fights for justice, equality, and fairness. After law school, Maya joined the, uh, and by the way, her law school was Columbia, my alma mater. She went to work in the civil division of the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York and later became the first black woman to serve as counsel to the mayor of New York City, helping to deliver on civil and immigrant rights. Following her time at City Hall in New York, Maya moved to academia. She became a faculty member and senior vice president for social justice at the New School University. While serving there as the Henry Cohn Professor of Public and Urban Policy, Maya was also seen regularly on MSNBC as a legal analyst. And um, I'm delighted to say that we have been on many panels together, which is how I got to know her so well. Uh, we were on one particularly contentious panel where Maya kept me calm and prevented my raging at the other person. More recently, Maya ran for mayor of New York City, and we're going to talk about all of those things. So welcome, Maya. We are just delighted to have you with us today. Well, you know, Jill, I had to come because I'd see what pin you were wearing. <laughs> you see what I'm wearing? <laughs> Says vote. I'm also wearing a vote necklace because nothing is more important. And the work you're doing is part of making sure that we can all vote and that all our votes will be counted. So thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you. And I couldn't agree more. So let's um, start by getting to know your journey a little bit. Um, you've dedicated your life to fighting for civil rights and we're all better off for it. And I read about your background and learned about um, your dad, George Wiley, who is a major civil rights leader and your mom, uh, Retha Francis Wiley. Tell us about your upbringing and how much of an influence your parents had on your decision um, to dedicate your life to protecting and defending civil rights. Oh, Victor, well, first of all, thank you for doing me the honor of that research. I'm 
you know, I always felt very lucky to grow up in the family I grew up in. And, you know, since my parents were civil rights activists, and I'm literally a child of the civil rights movement, quite literally, <laughs> uh, you know, it meant that in my early years, you know, family activities were rallies and demonstrations and watching dad get arrested on TV. Um, my mother went to work to be the breadwinner, uh, something that, you know, Jill will appreciate with your history, Jill, um, but not something a lot of women did back then, but because he wasn't earning enough money to support the family as an organizer. <laughs> you know, he left a career in chemistry to become an organizer in the civil rights movement. And I, you know, as a result, I would say, you know, we were always a family where the conversation around the dinner table was always about justice and politics and what was happening in the nation. And, you know, um, having seen parents who were kind of part of that history, I don't think there's any question that for me that really shaped my career. It's just that I didn't, my, my parents were very good and particularly my mother because my father passed away when I was nine about letting my brother and I make our own choices about our careers. She never said, oh, you have, you know, you're children of the civil rights movement. That means you have to be civil rights leaders yourself. She never, ever said that. She used to say, you know, whatever you want to do would make your father proud will make me proud if you're doing what you want to do. Uh, but I do think that growing up in that kind of family meant, you know, it was a tremendous pride, but also a tremendous sense of responsibility because it was impossible to watch what was going on that was wrong. Um, when I was, you know, in high school and college, it was the anti-apartheid movement um, mm. and not get involved. It was just impossible because, you know, we had parents who modeled that if something's wrong, you jump in with both feet and fight to fix it. And you're, um, you've definitely made both of them proud since then. And your mother was white and married your dad, who is black. And there's this interesting interracial element of that marriage and how things have changed since then. And I'm just wondering first kind of your thoughts about that and then how concerned you are that this Supreme Court might overturn Loving, which um, is the case that granted the right of interracial marriage. Yeah, you know, my parents got married at a time when their love was literally forbidden. And they made a decision to get married uh, and despite that. And like many people who make that decision in a society that says in many states it's unlawful, uh, and even if it's not unlawful, it won't be tolerated, it, they ran away and got married. <laughs> they literally did not tell their families. Um, a story that I love about uh, my parents is my father was a faculty member in the chemistry department at University of Syracuse. And Daniel Patrick Moynihan, later Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan from New York, was also on faculty. And he and his wife, as soon as my parents got back, because they literally, as I said, ran away and came back and told everybody they were married, because that was their strategy <laughs> to handle the fact that no one would accept it. Uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan and his wife invited them over to dinner. And they did that really as a message to the university to say they have allies, they have support. Um, we embrace this marriage. And the idea that that was so necessary and important is one that's hard to fathom today. But I think it's also a reminder because that was my lifetime, right? That, that, that 
was my lifetime that it was not acceptable, uh, that my parents had to hide it from their parents. So when I think about this, I think about the fact that our, our struggle for civil rights in this country was one we fought for hundreds of years, and it really wasn't until the second half of the 20th century that we started winning major victories. And here's the thing, because we've been winning, because of all that work, because if it's success, we are now seeing the challenge to the victories. Um, I don't know that we will actually lose the right to interracial marriage because I think that will be something that will be very hard for the Supreme Court to do, to be honest. The fact, the fact that it got named in a Supreme Court opinion in a way that suggested it could be taken away is in and of itself demonstrating how dangerous our, our uh, and how endangered our democracy is right now. Mm. Because that shouldn't even be something you can let come out your mouth as a Supreme Court justice. And, I, and the idea that we have now, for the first time in the history of this country, seen our Supreme Court take away a recognized fundamental right, the right to abortion, after 50 years of it being recognized by the Supreme Court, and frankly, many years before that, in which it was an accepted practice, no matter what they tell you, it's not true, was an accepted practice. That's actually not true for interracial marriage. That's not true for marriage equality and gay marriage. So what are they really telling us? They are telling us it is a message that it is all on the table, that doesn't mean we will, in fact, lose it all. And I think that's the important point, because we won't allow it. And because it will be very difficult to take some of it away because we won't. But I think this is also the point. What my parents taught me was you have to fight for what is right. And that means we all have to keep fighting because they had the nerve to take away a right and to actually name others that we could lose. That is where it stops. So as part of what you inherited from your parents, you went to work for the government right after you graduated from law school. And basically your work has been principally in government and cause, what I would call cause organizations. And uh, of course, I was very thrilled when you announced that you were running for mayor. Um, and you were well, wonderful. You were wonderful, wasn't, Jill. <laughs> well, because you know, you're wonderful. And of course, I'm disappointed, as I'm sure you must be, uh, in the results that transpired. Um, but uh, you nonetheless inspired a lot of people by what you did and what you said. And the conversations on key issues that you promoted, I think, made a difference. But what I want to ask you is, what gave you the courage to run for office? That's To me, that's really a big thing. I was scared just running as a delegate for Biden, which is nothing. But actually running to be mayor of the city of New York and to actually think about running the city. Um, so I want to just get some thoughts about what were your goals if you had won, but what gave you the courage to take on that challenge? Mm. That is such a good question. And there are many days when I ask myself the same <laughs> question, Jill. But look, I mean, I think you both know um, because you both do this yourselves. So I'm, I'm not saying anything that's probably not obvious, but sometimes you're just called and it's not rational. Uh, if you actually sat and thought about it, you think, why, why would, this is scary. <laughs> 
Um, this is going to possibly even put my family at risk. I had, that was a real consideration for me was what that would mean to my two children who were young adults, which enabled me to be a little bit more bold, but I, but it was, I think I had a lot of fear for my family. Uh, you know, there's a way in which families can really come under attack and, and family members can get harassed and sometimes even threatened. And I, I worried about that. Um, but once I kind of satisfied myself that I could keep them safe, and I, I, I will say I made a decision, a very conscious, considered decision to not include them in the campaign for that reason, um, that mm-hmm. I could at least do everything in my part to protect them by only putting myself out there and not putting them out there, where there were times in the campaign where they said, we'll do a lot better if you go to the beauty salon with your daughter. And I was like, yeah but that won't be good for her. Um, so it doesn't really matter if it would be good for me. <laughs> and so I make those kinds of judgments and that actually made it a lot better because I would say that those were my biggest fears. Um, and I think like all courage, you know, courage isn't the absence of fear. Uh, it's not, it's the willingness to do despite the fear. Yes. Uh, and it's something I learned from my parents just by watching them. You know, they never said it out loud. Uh, you know, I, you know, my mother was pregnant with my brother, uh, and I have the picture of her standing out on the side of a building and with her very large full womb. Um, and that was the day in which she was being arrested for fighting against school segregation. Um, so she wasn't afraid to go to jail for what she believed in, even pregnant and very visibly pregnant. She wasn't afraid. My parents weren't afraid to get married. My father wasn't afraid to leave his very promising career as a black man at a top university teaching organic chemistry, <laughs> to leave that, leave everything he'd worked for to become a full-time activist in the civil rights movement because it, they were called. Um, so sometimes I think it was just having others demonstrate that no matter how scary that they took the leap and did it, that it didn't come without cost but that the costs were worth the benefits. And I think that goes back to your second part of your question. And I just wanna say, it's the most humbling thing I can hear if it made a difference that I raised some issues and a vision, because that's why I ran. You know, I ran, of course, hoping I would win, but knowing it would be a long shot for a black woman who had never won political office, uh, running for the mayor of the city, the country's largest city, that had never in its lifetime as one of the oldest cities in this country ever elected a woman to be mayor. I knew it was a long shot, but the idea that we would settle for anything short of a vision that would say that we can end homelessness, that would say that, you know, it wasn't acceptable that black women died in childbirth at three or four times the rate of white women, and we could solve that. Um, that it was not okay that people couldn't afford to stay in New York City. We could actually think about subsidizing rent. Uh, that, you know, if we really wanted to think about making our schools better, we had to understand that smaller class sizes were a necessity and not just a pipe dream. And that we could have mental health services in our schools. You know, I know firsthand how much it matters if you can get the supports you need for the problems you have. And we've got so many kids in our city, in our cities and communities across the country where we simply as a country have failed to support them and that their social and emotional support is their educational support. And that means mental health services inside schools. And 
you know, I, as a mom whose kids were, had gone to the neighborhood public school, but could supplement it out of my pocket if they needed it, but watched all their classmates who couldn't, you know, it was unacceptable. And so the greatest privilege of the journey was just being able to be out there with a great team of people, crowdsourcing even, and having a real different discussion about how to develop policy, which is to have people's assemblies and say, you know, we can think bigger, we can do bigger, we just can't be afraid of it. So how can I be afraid to run <laughs> if I wanted if I wanted anyone asking for the people to lend them their power uh, to be unwilling to say what they would do for it and be willing to be bold? Yeah. And that's that was the biggest gift to me was the ability to do that. It's a, a totally great answer. It's really sad that you had to even think about the safety of your family in order to run. I know it's a reality. Uh, I just got off a call with um, Governor Whitmer, who has been very much threatened and who, you know, has to worry about herself and her family. And what's happened in America that that is where we're at. Um, and I really resonates with me when you say your parents were doers because that was my family, where my father saw a problem. He didn't complain. He said, what's the solution? And let's go do it. And that's, I think, what's motivated me always is to don't complain, just get in there and figure out how to do it. And I'm going to figure out how to get ERA to be the law, uh, to, to be part of the Constitution, because it, it, Dobbs shows we need it. But it's not just Dobbs. It's so much more. But anyway, um, I'm, you know, listening to you and your goals, I hope that you will consider running for office again. Is that a possibility? Well, you know, look, I'm so lucky to be heading the Leadership Conference for Civil and Human Rights. I can't think of um, a, a greater joy, but also more impactful place to sit right now because we are a coalition that, you know, looks like America. Frankly, we're the majority. <laughs> of the country because we have almost every faith uh, that exists in this country. We have every race. Um, we're 230 organizations strong and it's everything from the traditional civil rights groups like the NAACP and the National Urban League to Unidos, uh, formerly known as La Raza, to you know even much smaller wow. organizations that are doing community organizing. I mean, we've got it all. But I can't think of a more important time to say that we're all in it together. You know, LGBTQ, um, Black, Latino, Sikh, Muslim, uh, women of all races, reproductive justice groups, as well as women rights groups. We're all in this together. And I don't think there's ever been a more important time to be in coalition and partnership focused and, and, focused and connected on the fact that it's all of our fights, that, you know, folks are coming because they're against the Jewish community because they're anti-Semitic. They're going to come for the black community or the Muslim community as well. If folks come for women on being able to control their bodies and their choices, they're coming for gay marriage. They're, they've already come for voting rights, as you mentioned, Jill, at the beginning. I mean, voting rights is something that used to be a bipartisan issue, and it is not anymore. We couldn't, it, it, that is an astounding statement, but those fights have all gone back to the states. So, you know, the only way we win is together, and that's the history of the Leadership Conference. And I'm just incredibly excited and grateful to be there. 
and they're lucky to have you, and we're going to have Victor start exploring some of that right now. No, it's such an incredible mission, so critically important. You became the CEO and president of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights earlier this year. Um, first, talk to us. It must be challenging to coordinate so many different organizations. What techniques have you found um, work best, um, many of which are probably useful in any organization? Well, you know, I'm fortunate. I started in May. I walked in the door with a fabulous staff <laughs> and a long history, right? The, the coalition has existed for 72 years. It came together in 1950. Mm -hmm. It was over 100 organizations then. So even while it's grown, it was always large. It was founded by the NAACP, uh, by Roy Wilkins, also by one of our most important mm -hmm. historic labor leaders, um, A. Philip Randolph, sleeping car porters but also important Jewish leader, Arnie um, Aronson. Uh, and, and so, and it came together um, at a time when it just recognized we had to make impact and we couldn't do it unless we were working in coalition. And it organized the March on Washington in 1963, uh, but is also responsible for winning every single voting rights legislation since 1965, including all the reauthorizations. I, th I say this and much more. I mean, I could go through a whole long list on employment and on all kinds of issues. And even uh, during the Donald Trump years, stopping things like the citizenship question on the U.S. Census, which was designed really to suppress political power and voice uh, uh, by, by communities that were immigrant communities. I say all that because there's such a long practice here of setting a table that's a coalitional table. And a big way in which we organize it is through task forces. So we have a task force on voting rights. We have a task force on fighting hate and bias. We have a task force on media and technology uh, that includes disinformation and misinformation. And the way that works is we have so much expertise and power in the organizations that make up the coalition. A really important way that we work is recognizing that bringing that leadership together, but starting and focusing the experts on what needs to be done, what the strategies are, and then using that to pull together others into the fight. Has, is, it means it's all hands on deck. We're really working in tandem with our partners. Um, and then we're providing lots of strategic support services like communications and message testing, like making sure we're understanding where we have election protection, where we have gaps, how to get them filled. I mean, you name it, we do it. <laughs> Uh, but it is the fact that it's a history and it's a practice that's been proven to work. And I think, you know, leaning hard into what has made this coalition so successful for so many decades is exactly what I'm going to continue to do. And you came in during a particularly, um, how do I say, a perilous moment in our democracy. What is your vision for the organization as president and CEO? Well, let me just say, just because you're so right, Victor, I mean, I started day one for me that night, and I happened to be at dinner with a board member, uh, actually two board members, and I was leaving and my phone was buzzing and blowing up and I was like, what is going on? Mm -hmm. And it was because the draft Alito opinion had been oh leaked, saying that Roe v. Wade and Casey would be overruled. Now, wow. let's just say that that met, and then came Buffalo and the hate crimes that were targeting black people and killing them in Buffalo. And then came Uvalde, 
uh, and the horrific mass shooting that it's impossible for me even to follow the, the news on now. Uh, and then came Biden's executive order on policing since the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act didn't pass um, and figuring out how to work on implementation of that, including things like getting white supremacists off police forces. I, I say that because that's how daunting the task, and that's just part of it. Uh, but it's also that um, one of the things that's clear is we cannot and will not give up on winning voting rights. If we are, we are not going to give up on winning voting rights, we've got to restore the protections of the Voting Rights Act. We've got to pass uh, the, the act, uh, the Freedom to Vote Act, that makes it easier for people with disabilities, easier for people who are elderly, easier for people who work and can't give up a paycheck uh, to vote, to actually exercise their most practical and fundamental right that helps us organize our democracy. Uh, because all of the things that we were seeing requires us all to be engaged. In our, in our civil society. And that's voting is one of the primary ways that we make sure our issues that are most important to us are getting vindicated and, and supporting the work that's gonna happen at state level. Because with the Justice Alito opinion, when it did finally come out, not as a draft, but as a formal did, was what we knew was coming. But what it was, was a statement that said, we're coming for fundamental rights. And the only way we get start to get those protected is fighting to get them enshrined in states and fighting those fights in states. That's voting rights. That is the right to be able to control your body and your bodily integrity. And that means all the other things we know that are endangered if we're not starting to get them protected. ERA, uh, as Jill said, that's we're talking about state strategies. So a big part of it is to be a support uh, platform to all the amazing work that our partners are doing in states uh, on these issues so that we're getting back to the beltway. <laughs> but back to the beltway effectively. We are nonpartisan. We do this in, in, we don't tell people who to vote for, but we do talk about the issues that make a difference in people's lives, that are rights that everyone has no matter who they vote for, and that we need to protect. So a big part of it is really our um, collective strategy that sees this as a fight for fundamental rights and ensures that we're fighting on them effectively, state level up through federal level. Maya, let me ask you, if you think that if Congress passed the legislation that has been pending, like the John Lewis Voting Rights Act and the Protect Our Democracy Act, would that be enough or do we need something more? Uh, both those acts would be tremendous in their impact to make sure that our citizens can vote. Um, vote and that, that's why they were both necessary, by the way. As you know, yes. the John Lewis Voting Rights Act focused on restoring what the Supreme Court took from us uh, back in 2013 uh, in the Shelby decision that basically took away preclearance, you know, the, the, mm -hmm. the protection that said for all these places that made sure to make it more difficult for people of color to vote, um, any changes they wanted to make to voting rights law, the Department of Justice uh, would review, would pre-clear to make sure that it wouldn't have any adverse impact, um, that it wouldn't help make it harder for people of color to vote. Uh, the thing about that is it was necessary. Um, it was actually one of the ways, for example, we stopped the kind of 
gerrymandering we've seen in Florida from Governor DeSantis, you know, eliminating a black congressional district. So really pretty critical in terms of political voice. But the same thing is true for making it easier for voters to vote. You know, in 2020, as you know, was one of the highest voter participation years we have ever had in this country. We literally had like 68% of voters voted. The reason was because of the pandemic, we made it easier in states because we had to protect health. But what it meant is we had more early voting. It meant we had more polling sites. It meant that you could drop off your ballot into a ballot box uh, rather than wait in line. Um, meant you could vote by mail. So for folks who had disabilities, for people who were elderly, yeah. for folks who just couldn't skip a paycheck, it, it created more opportunity for them to actually get their votes in and get them counted. And as we know, safe, accurate, fair. We know that because we have the research and data to prove it, but I think it's substantial and we have the proof from 2020. Now, do we need to make sure we don't have partisan gerrymandering? The Supreme Court has you know, taken a pass on that. The gerrymandering question is one um, that does go also not just to these pieces of legislation, but beyond them. But if we can get our voter participation up, if we can get people actually engaging in elections and recognizing, even when they make it hard for us, we can still vote. Uh, we need felony reenfranchisement for sure. That is more than the federal legislation. We still have millions of people who are denied the right to vote, even though they're returning citizens who've paid their debts to society. And frankly, what does that say about us that we um, don't believe in redemption? I mean, it's kind of core value <laughs> for, yeah. for, for many of us, but, but it's also critically important that folks who are impacted by problems who have a voice in the solutions to those problems. That includes people who are formerly incarcerated. So there are more things we have to do, you're right, but it would be such a huge and massive step to get those two pieces of legislation passed. And by the way, I wanna add this, because you wouldn't know it from this election cycle, but voters care about voting rights. It's something that we're missing despite the fact that voters, particularly voters of color who know that fundamentally what we've seen is an attack on the changing demographics of this country and fear and an effort to hold on to power rather than share it democratically. And that's a big issue for communities of color. Of course, even those two bills, which are not, in my view, adequate, they're good starts, but they aren't the end of the game, will never pass because of the filibuster. So that raises the question in my mind of whether you would be in favor of eliminating the filibuster or at least amending it some way, or whether you see too many risks in eliminating the filibuster? Well, look, you know, I don't think there's any question that these two pieces of voting rights legislation should have passed. You know, President Biden himself was calling for a reform of the filibuster rule, which is we know was a, it comes straight out of the Confederacy era <laughs> as an effort to hold on to power. We should understand that this is not something that's fundamental to democratic practice or yes. tradition. Uh, but that what that represented when the president said, look, make a special rule so we can get these pieces of legislation done. You know, that obviously is something that um, I support. I think the question is how do we restore 
the voice and power of people who far too many powerful people have been trying to silence. Because it's part of how we're going to get the reforms we need, including legislation passed that saves and protects our democracy. And so we're not done. Uh, I don't see this as it will, these pieces of legislation will never pass because we're not done fighting for it. You know, I come from a community and Jill, you do too. Women had to fight for over a hundred years to get the vote. Black people had to fight for 200. We know what it means to be in a long game. We know what it means to keep fighting and we're still fighting. We're not going anywhere and we're still the majority of this country. We will be heard. I'm I'm going to keep on fighting. I'm just in the civil rights movement of my youth that these things will become real. And I think they're essential. I mean, I think that we need to get rid of, I'm for totally eliminating the filibuster. That's all. I mean, uh, there's no way around it in my view. Um, I think we have to. And I, I also essential, as I said earlier, was the Equal Rights Amendment, because I think it would help solve the abortion problem that we're having now, but other inequities faced by women. And the requisite number of states have ratified the Equal Rights Amendment. And according to my research, talking to experts in the field, all that has to happen is the executive branch, that is the President of the United States, needs to issue an order to the archives to publish it, and then it's part of the Constitution. And I I don't know, is your organization at all involved in trying to make that a reality? So, you know, we care deeply about and have a number of this nation's, you know, historical women's rights organizations, but it's also not just a women's rights issue. I want to say that, you know, we should not look at equality for any person or group is something that only benefits that person or group. It's the wrong way to look at it. Every time we have protected, created and protected a right, it has helped people beyond the folks who are protected. Um, And we know that we can see that from protecting uh, access to abortion, because that's also about protecting access to all kinds of reproductive health care for people who need it uh, and for protecting people's ability to marry who they want to marry. Um, it's the right to the privacy that exists uh, and that has built upon Roe v. Wade. So here's what I would say. Uh, we have a lot of fights we have to fight. And right now we're taking the lead from our partner organizations that are part of the coalition around what the priorities are. It's part of the way we work as a coalition. And so for those lead groups, um, one of the things that's so important right now is to make sure that people know they where and how they can get the reproductive health services they need mm-hmm. right now, and where and how we need to fight at state level for where we can get enshrined the kinds of protections that right now the Supreme Court has said it won't protect as a fundamental right, meaning we have state-by-state fights. Our agenda is constantly emerging, and as you know, Jill, because we have so many fundamental rights we're now fighting about, we're in a process of figuring out with our partners, with our coalition members, where and when and how we enter as a coalition, because that is the important and hard work of being a coalition um, and really recognizing that we've got to be strategic so that we're working in places where all of our all of our communities are under attack, because so often it's all the same states. Yeah. Right. Whether it's whether it's marriage equality, whether it's access to abortion, whether it's voting rights it tends to be all the same states yeah. that are that are taking them away. Uh, as we know, we have states that are protecting them. Um, yeah. We want to make sure that there are states that are 
that we're also fighting. I think there's a fight also to enshrine uh, gay marriage, marriage equality. Yes. Um, so we've got so many fights. And one of the ways uh, that we're going to fight it is by taking the leads from our experts, from our partners. I'm going to let Victor ask the last question before we run out of time with you. I can't help but mention, too, also the effort to ban books, because I was looking behind on your background, and you have Mouse and Beloved, which are uh, both books that, unfortunately, the right wing tried to ban. So um, thank you for putting up those books and for all that you do. But the last question that um, we have is your message to young people. As you know, this is um, an intergenerational podcast, and so we try to engage everyone. And um, what is your message to young people and voters uh, for this November about why their vote is so important? Oh, look, and I have two of those young people, <laughs> 21-year-old and 18-year-old. 18-year-old uh, just registered to vote. It's very exciting. Oh, awesome. Um, so let me say this. You got the power. But the way you use it starts with the polls. And the powers and the numbers. I mean, we already know that, you know, when you, when you total up millennials and Gen Zs, it's a huge and powerful voting block. Uh, and the ability and the importance of young people who are bold, who have big ideas, who are frustrated by being told we can't do something we need to do like climate change, or we can't do something we need to do like protect gender equality <laughs> and have an equal rights amendment, or that we can't do something like, you know, uh, have real meaningful public safety that really holds police accountable. You know, all the things that I know that are that are top of mind for young people, making college free, <laughs> uh, critically important because these generations are gonna really actually either reap the benefits uh, or live with the consequences of either our successes or our failures. Uh, but right now, and I'm so grateful that my two Gen Zers uh, are leaning hard into this, is the recognition that because Young people are such a big voting block. You come out in force, you actually change things and you change whether or not you're listened to. Because rightly or wrongly, I believe that anyone who wins elective office should listen to everybody. But rightly or wrongly, politicians, and I can tell you because I also saw it in the mayoral race, they go where the vote, where people turn out, not where people yeah. are, where they turn out. So you want to be heard? show up. That is perfect advice. And we are the third largest generation um, right now. And we're also the most diverse and most educated. So there is, like you said, there is power um, with the young people. And so grateful for all that you do and for joining us today. Thank you so much, Paul. Oh, it was a pleasure. I really appreciate you both, both for the work, for your own leadership and for this incredible podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being our guest. We loved having you and we hope you'll come back and tell us more about your organization and that we will put in our show notes um, a, a link so that people can find out more about what you're doing and how they can help. Oh, please do. Civilrights.org. It takes us all and I'm really grateful. And young folks, Youth Central, come on. Thank you, Maya. Thank you, Thank Maya. You. Take care. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of iGen Politics with Maya Wiley. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did, and then you'll tune in next week for another great episode of iGen Politics. In the meantime, you can follow us wherever you follow your podcasts, and please leave us a five-star review and rating on Apple Podcasts, that help, as that helps other people find the podcast 
and also helps this podcast tremendously. We hope you can also subscribe on YouTube and like this video and also click the bell for our weekly notifications every Wednesday.